Our Old Testament reading for today comes from Exodus 19, 3 through 6. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountains, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning we're taking a break from Romans to share uh, some time to uh, to talk about our church vision, which is something we do yearly right around the time of our pledge drive. So let's read from Acts 2, 42 through 47. This is the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Father, now we do thank you for this, your word, which sanctifies us in the truth. Your word is truth. We pray, O oh God, that you would till the soil of our hearts, that we might receive the seed that you are planting in us and become what you long for us to be as your, as your people. Transform us, we pray now, through your word, and we pray for the unction and anointing of your Holy Spirit to guide us through it transform us, convict us, and convince us of its power and truth, and help us to leave differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, I mentioned a moment ago we're taking a break from the book of Romans just for a week, and the book of Romans has been great, and I think we're about four sermons in, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit this morning about our church's vision. Now, a famous verse in the Bible that some of you may have heard from, well, it's the King James Version, is without a vision, the people perish, from Proverbs 29, 18. But that's actually not a great translation of the original Hebrew. A more accurate translation is, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. You'll see that in your ESV or NASB Bibles. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. In other words, unless you know where you're headed and why you're headed there, it's easy to become restless and give up. The story is told about a man who goes to a building site and he sees three laborers there. He goes up to the first one who looks a bit depressed and asks, what are you doing? Well, replies the first man, I put these bricks here and then I put some cement on the top and I give some, put some more bricks down and some more cement and then at five o'clock I go home. So says the man asks the second laborer, what are you doing? Well, says the man, I'm not just putting bricks on top of one another. I'm part of a team making a building appear, and when it's finished, we'll look back and we'll think, 
we built that. So the man asked the third laborer, what are you doing? And the third laborer responds, I'm saving lives. What, replies the man who asked the question. Well, I may only be putting bricks on top of one another and adding cement, but I'm part of a team that's building this building together, and when it's finished, it's going to be a hospital. And people are gonna be brought here, and lives will be saved, and I know my bricks are just a small part of it, but without my bricks, lives wouldn't be saved. Now, we should ask, which of those three laborers do you think is happiest and most fulfilled? Well, of course, the answer is the one who not only knows what he's doing, but why he's doing it. Visions like the third laborer who says, I'm saving lives. I may only be putting bricks down, but we're building a hospital, and people will be brought here, and their lives will be saved. Well, we're not building a hospital here, but like a hospital, the work that happens in a church, in this church, is like a hospital in that lives depend on it. I think right out of the gate, we ought to feel and believe that what we're doing here is so important that lives depend on it. That we're not just people who gather here because of convenience and we like each other, but we believe what we're doing, the gospel ministry here, is vital for life itself. The gospel has implications, of course, for all of life. And God has called this church collectively and individually to be a prophetic voice and presence in the context of our homes and schools and businesses and city. I hope you view your calling as a believer that way, that God has given you a prophetic voice, so to speak, to speak into wherever God has called you to be, whether it's school or work or your family or your neighborhoods or your friends. That's certainly how we view our calling as a church. Now, typically, we've articulated our vision, which is to share the love of God for the life of our community, which may sound like a generic sort of statement, to share the love of God for the life of our community. We know that, you know, that can mean all sorts of things, but for us, we believe that God has called us to this mission, and God has called us to embody this mission by reaching up in authentic worship to our triune God, reaching in to edify each other and equip the saints and care for one another, and reaching out to care for our neighbors with words of truth and deeds of mercy. And so if our mission is to share the love of God for the life of our community, the vision or the way we see that happening is typically we've articulated that by reaching up, reaching in, and reaching out. But this morning I'm going to express those actions by three distinguishing dimensions that revealed the church in Acts to be a remarkable assembly. So I want to ground our vision in this image of the early church in the book of Acts. And the way I see this passage in the book of Acts, Acts 2, 42 through 47, which some of you have read before, you're familiar with it, but the way I see this vision of the church, the early church, is it's God's sort of ideal. God wants to, God is bragging on this early church. So if, if, if there's something God wants us to see about sort of the church in its purity, the church in its sort of infant purity, it's this church in Acts that I just want to highlight this morning. Because these verses that we just read describe the church in Acts in its prime 
when it possessed a purity of devotion to the risen Lord unmatched in succeeding generations. And they manifested spiritual duties, spiritual character, and the result of that was spiritual impact. They had spiritual duties, spiritual character, and both of those things together resulted in spiritual impact. And those things, those three things model what we value and long to be as a congregation. So the first thing I want us to look at is spiritual duties. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. When you read that, if you read it through again, just read it. Just, you know, I'm just going to just take a moment and look at that. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. You can see that this was a saved church, a scriptural church, a fellowshipping church, a Christ-centered church, and a praying church. The church didn't possess the cultural elements of success that we might think of today when we think about churches or worldly strategies, so to speak, but it was equipped with all the necessary components to accomplish the purposes of God. The elders of I, and I, we meet once a month, and we sort of talk about, you know, we have to talk about the budget and the business aspect of keeping a church together, but we talk about ministry and we talk about what it looks like going forward for us to do more ministry and sort of be the church that God has called us to be, and we have to remind ourselves that for all of the great things we want to do, we actually right now have everything we need just through the ministry of prayer, the word, fellowship, and the sacraments. Like those things alone are the building blocks for what any healthy church ought to be. In fact, in some way, I could kind of like walk away, like, like drop the mic and just walk away and say, there it is, y'all, right? I mean, I could do that because in some like real sense, that is what God equips the saints with to be the church he calls us to be in the world. Again, they didn't possess cultural elements of success as we would think about them today or worldly strategies, but they were equipped with all the necessary components to accomplish God's purposes. You know, we're grateful for the accoutrements of modern worship, right? We're sitting in this building with vaulted ceilings. It's very pretty. I hope the pews are comfortable. They feel comfortable to me. I've been in churches where there's just wood pews with no cushion, right? We've got a sound system, and there's all these sort of, you know, modern accoutrements of a worship service. And we celebrate where God has brought us from as a church. And for those of you who don't know sort of our history as a church, we spent 10 years in the theater of the YMCA. And that was a while. But... All those years in the theater of the YMCA weren't wasted. All that time, God was tilling the soil of our hearts and growing the gospel seeds that we were sowing. And it wasn't always easy. There were times when we weren't sure we'd survive. But we devoted ourselves, like the church in Acts, to the ordinary means of grace, to the teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and of prayer. Those fundamental essential elements of what any true worshiping community ought to have for viability in God's sight. 
again, this was a church that God was pleased to brag about, devoted to these elements of scripture and teaching and fellowship and prayer. Now, going forward, because this sermon is sort of linked to our pledge drive, and many of you, especially if you're a member, will receive an envelope in the mail in the coming days, sort of our yearly pledge cards as we just sort of think about what it looks like to support the work of ministry, vision, and provision. But we're going to, this year in 2020, continue to enhance our devotion by becoming more focused and less distracted and take God more seriously. In some ways, you know, the church's job is to help us be more attentive to God, right? Because that's what we want to be. We want to be more attentive to God in our busy, very busy lives here in the context in which we live, where church can often feel, the life of the church and the, the body of believers can often feel just like one more thing on the calendar. And we get that, right? We have busy lives, we have families, we have jobs, we have neighborhoods. There's a lot going on in our lives. But the last thing we want this to be is just one more sort of schedule on the calendar. Check that off. Let me go back to my normal life. I got my Sunday service in. Let me go back to my life. But that's, that's not what God has called us to be. God has called us to be a prophetic voice in our culture and community, church, in our schools, in our neighborhood. So in 2020, we want to take God more seriously, and part of the way we'll do that is through the ministry of the word and sacrament. Secondly, the church in Acts had spiritual character. It says that awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. You know what's interesting about the book of Acts, especially this passage here, is you notice in this passage that the word love isn't mentioned once. And the, book, the, the, the word love is not mentioned in the entire book of Acts. All 28 chapters. Did you know that? The word love is not mentioned once. And there's a reason for that. Why might that be? Because, well, we think of God's love as what God feels for us. And that's not wrong. But in the Bible, the Greek word for love is an action. It is an action. It's what God does for us because of his loving, holy character. And the church received God's love, and as a result, we're exhibiting loving actions toward one another. In other words, if all the rest of the New Testament books talk about the love of God, the book of Acts shows it, right? And that's what's happening right here in Acts 2, 42 through 47, is it's demonstrating how the church demonstrated the love of God, how the church embodied that love, and how did they do that? Well, they were a sharing church. They had practical oneness. They cared about each other's needs, they were immensely generous. You think about that early Christian community in the first century, sort of beleaguered and embattled as they were by forces of persecution. There were the pagans on one side, they had the Jewish religious establishment on the other side. And one of the things that was demonstrated and displayed in their fellowshipping was how much they cared for one another, how much they cared for one another. 
They were radically generous. They had practical oneness. They cared about each other's needs. And when one person was in need, everyone was in need. If someone in the fellowship needed something or was, was, was without, they all rallied together. And so their spiritual character, which caused them to be loving the way that they had received the love of God, resulted in the physical sharing of their resources. And you know, that's always how true spirituality works. Inner transformation results in outward manifestation. If there's something going on on the inside that God is doing, sanctifying us through the work of the Spirit, that manifests itself in our behavior towards one another in the way we love one another, the way we care for one another, the way we're concerned about each other. And again, the lives we live often militate against that kind of behavior because we're busy and we're self-interested, and that's not entirely wrong, but can become sort of an idol where the only thing we're really about is ourselves. And the only time we ever check up with one another is when we see each other for a brief, a brief moment on Sunday morning. But the church in the first century was a church that deeply cared about one another. They cared about the other's needs, and they lived lives together. They were concerned for each other. And I want you to know this morning that the sharing of your time, your talents, your treasures, it's not in vain because it enables the kind of ministry God wants us to be and the ministry that we're doing here. In a couple days, I mentioned a minute ago, you're going to receive pledge cards. And, you know, it's always uncomfortable for a pastor to sort of this time of year, right, to do that, right? I hate to link sort of uh, my sermon with, you know, some giving drive. But I do want you to know that the gifts that you have given, and this is a generous church, the gifts that you have given have empowered and enabled us to do some ministry here. And we're proud of that ministry that we've done and along this line of caring for one another, we've established a benevolence fund, and we have administered aid more than once. It's not something we broadcast because we want to preserve the dignity of the people who are in need, but it is something that is ongoing, and we're, our benevolence sort of team is agile. We try to be as agile as we can so that it's something that happens quickly when someone's in need. And so your gifts have enabled that. We've helped people. In the coming year, we want to continue to do this, and we hope this grows beyond not just the material, but emotional and spiritual as well, and provide different aspects of care, whether it be counseling or support. We want to be a church like the church in Acts with spiritual character that manifests in actions of love for one another and beyond. Third, the dynamic corporate life and spiritual character of the church had great spiritual impact. And there are four features I want to highlight of the spiritual impact they had. First, they were a hospitable church. In verse 46 it says, And day by day, attending the temple and together breaking bread in their homes. They were a hospitable church. You know what the key to evangelism is in a post-Christian culture? You ready for it? 
It's hospitality. Now, the New Testament word for hospitality comes from a compound word of love and stranger, philozenia. The idea of loving the stranger, or at the very least, loving someone you don't know well. I'm always amazed that even in a small church like this, I can talk to someone and say, oh, you know, I was with so-and-so for coffee, and they can say, who? Right? Even in a small church like this, it takes a lot of work to get to know each other. But hospitality is the idea of love for the stranger or love for someone you don't know well, and the idea of inviting that person in to your life. It has its origin literally in love for outsiders. Of course, the context of Acts chapter 2, and you go home today and read the entire chapter, but the context is the day of Pentecost when the promise of the Holy Spirit was poured out on all the believers. And that scene in Acts chapter 2 is so powerful because you have people from all of these different backgrounds, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, it says, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. You have all these people. And it's sort of a preview of Revelation 7-9, which is before the throne of God in heaven on that great day, there were people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, and this beautiful idea in the consummation of all things, in a new heaven and a new earth, when all of God's people come together and worship, the church right now, we're trying to be that. We're trying to be people from different backgrounds and languages and tongues and nations, and that is a vitally important aspect of hospitality. It's not just inviting somebody over for tea and crumpets. It's the idea that your life is open And the discomfort that you may feel with people who you don't know well is a sacrifice you give to God. And you're always leaning into that. And I'm going to push this just a little farther, even though it's not in my notes this morning. But I want to say that for each one of us, did you know the onus, if you are a part of the majority culture, or if you are, you know, socioeconomically established, it is, the onus is always on you to pull towards those who are a minority or outsiders or socioeconomically less established or less powerful than you are. That's sort of the way this vision in Scripture is, is that love moves towards the people who feel alienated or outside. A couple years ago, we moved through the entire book of Luke, and when I got to the end of the book of Luke, I think the title, the title of that series was The Story of Salvation, and I just needed some title. That sounds like a good title. But if I ever preached it again, I would preach it Jesus on the margins, because the entire book of Luke is Jesus moving towards people who are alienated from the covenant life of the people of God and bringing them in through his love and through the gospel. And that's what God calls each one of us to be, and it's connected to the idea of hospitality, that we are moving towards the outsider, we are moving towards the stranger, we are moving towards others. That is what the gospel, and that is what love does, and that is what the church is to be. And it's easy to become insulated. 
right? Because we long for comfort. We want familiarity in every area of our life, and that's natural, normal, but the gospel calls us to go beyond our comfort zone and reach people, and it might just be inviting someone in your neighborhood over to your house for dinner who may be an unbeliever. The second thing is the sort of fruits of their spiritual impact. The reason for their spiritual impact is they were a joyful church. It says, with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God. You know, sharing your lives with other people produces joy. Joy should be the primary dividend of the Christian life. And if it's absent, we need to recalibrate our priorities. Now, statistics say that as we get older, we become more isolated. And this is especially true of men. And I've talked about this several times. So, brothers, we have to fight against the tendency to be isolated. And not only do men suffer um, particularly from isolation, but they also suffer more from depression. And three-quarters of suicides in America are men. And so there's, a, there's something about our fallen nature as men that causes us to isolate, and we find ourselves living joyless lives. And I want to say if it's true for men, it's true for everybody, that joy is a product of sharing our lives. The church in Acts was a joyful church. They were also, thirdly, an attractive church. It says, having favor with all the people. The church in Acts was not only a prophetic voice, but a life-giving presence in their community. Now, this is tricky because we all know that if you're faithfully preaching the gospel, some people are not going to like what you have to say. But there is a sense in which, right here in the book of Acts, the idea that they had favor with all the people, it meant that for whatever people may have philosophically disagreed with what the church was preaching and teaching, they could not deny the impact that their love and graciousness was having on the people in their circle, in their orbit, so to speak, right? It's one thing for you to disagree with me philosophically because I believe certain things in scripture, but my actions ought to make it really hard for you, right, not to like me as a person because my posture is one, not of defense, but of openness and grace. This is why they were an attractive church, the reason the church had spread so rapidly in the first centuries is the remarkable love and generosity of spirit they had. They had a magnanimous spirit. You know, a magnanimous spirit is a generous spirit. You give others the benefit of the doubt. The fortress mentality and that I've mentioned before that the church has espoused for sort of the last 30 years is not working, right? We're just going to barricade ourselves in our Christian ghettos and just batten down the hatches to weather the storm of a wicked world, that is, that's not what I see in Scripture, and it's certainly not working. The love in the gospel requires us to live lives of generosity, not just material generosity, but emotional, mental, intellectual generosity, where we give others the benefit of the doubt where we move towards others in a posture of openness and love, where we learn about other people and before we come out swinging, 
We build relationships. In fact, that's really required nowadays for us to do any sort of meaningful evangelism, right? To do any sort of meaningful evangelism today and really have any kind of impact, right, you have to sort of demonstrate goodwill towards outsiders and unbelievers. The fortress mentality, sort of barricading the sort of culture warrior mentality, like all of these things are not working as we see our culture sort of sliding off the cliff into secularism. But they were an attractive church because of the posture of their attitudes and hearts. And we want to be an attractive church to our neighbors. We want to make them eat their words about Christians being intolerant or bigoted or small-minded. Because love makes the message of repentance from sin penetrate. And then finally, they were a growing church. It says that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We ought to think deeply about the kind of church God is pleased to grow because it's the same church that God is pleased to send people to, right? So if you can think of like God knowing who he wants to save and thinking who should I send them to and looking to congregations he can trust. That's how I think of it, right? I mean, like, like you would recommend someone who has a health issue to a good doctor. You'd say, oh, oh, this guy or this woman, oh, they're great. You have to go see them. I know they're out of your network, but call them, right? Like, and like in the mind of God, God sends people to churches that he can entrust them to. And so the Lord added to their number those who were being saved, because they were the kind of church that God wanted them to be. That's our vision as a church, to be this kind of church that we see here in the book of Acts. Eckhard Schnabel says, the fellowship practiced love and hospitality, and that love and hospitality practiced by the believers had missionary consequences their unity and their joy and generosity was so attractive, it was so attractive that unbelievers started to attend. We're not always the best at community. And community, true community, is attractive to a dark world where people authentically and genuinely love and care for one another. Now the gospel sort of motivates that. It's supposed to, but we don't always sort of carry that torch forward. But that's the kind of church we want to be. Faith in Christ, it began to spread in this church because the gospel was not only heard, it was observed in the lives of the Christians in the first century, and as a result, their assembly grew. I guess the takeaway for us this morning is that God grows churches that are unified, joyful, spirit-filled, and generous. Because that conduct is a powerful testimony to the truth of the gospel. And what we're doing here in this church isn't a vision for vision's sake. It's about Jesus. And it may feel at times that we're sort of just stacking bricks on top of each other but in reality, we're joining God in what he's building. 
We're stacking gospel bricks because God is building his kingdom. And he's using the church, this church, to do it. That's part of our sort of grand vision going forward. And as you look over these pledge cards this week and consider committing financially to the vision here, remember that for all the things we want to do, like vision needs provision. So we're just prayerfully asking you to consider to commit your resources to supporting the work of this ministry. In our pledge letter that will go out this week, it sort of articulate the things that we plan on doing this year, where we've come from, the things that we've done this past year, and where we're going. But we want, we want to say that God has called each of us to take up the responsibility to support his vision. It's not that us personally as a church has such a compelling vision. We do in so much that we're adopting God's vision for the church. We don't necessarily have innovative schemes and plans for ministry when we have new ideas that we have ministry we want to do. We just started supporting foreign missions and local outreach. We have a benevolence fund. We're trying to hire a student ministry intern. There are a lot of things we're trying to do in the coming year. This summer, we'll be raising up and training officers, deacons and elders, and we're going to be petitioning the presbytery to become a local church so that by fall and September, we'll take a congregational vote, and hopefully in October, we'll become an official local church, because we're a church plant right now. And these are all exciting, good things. And for those of you that have been here with us for a while, you can identify that God has done a lot in our midst. And God is taking us places. Since we've moved into this building seven months ago, we've sort of felt the momentum. We had a capital campaign to build a sign on the property. We should be breaking ground in March on that sign. There's a lot of exciting, good things going. And a lot of that has been enabled and funded by your generous gifts. And so we thank you for that. And we also want to encourage you to continue that kind of support and commitment to this local body. As a pastor, finally, in conclusion, I just want to say I, I can't express adequately the depth and breadth of my gratitude to all of you within our church um, and some who um, do not attend this church, who have supported, who are committed to the mission and the vision of this church. And we're excited and we look forward to seeing what God has in store for us in the coming months and years. Let's pray and give thanks. Father, we thank you that you have given us a picture of the church in Acts. We realize that 21 centuries have passed since this portrait of the church in its prime. But we long, O oh God, to be a church that you can brag about. We long, O oh God, to be the church that you call, Lord, to and who are devoted to the teaching and the preaching of the word and scripture, to the fellowship of the saints, to prayer, and to the breaking of bread. Essentially a word and sacrament church, but also a, word, a church that is grounded not in just words of truth, but deeds of mercy and care for not, not just each other, but the community in which you've placed us. Oh God, we pray now that through the Holy Spirit, the gospel of Jesus Christ would be made known through us as we enter into 2020 
and that we would do great things for the kingdom, that your kingdom would grow, that the lost would come to know Christ and experience the salvation that you promise through your son and his work of atonement on the cross. Thank you now for this privilege we have to be your people. Let our hearts burn with that passion to see the kingdom grow through the gospel of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.